Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe from smittenkitchen.com for banana bread crepe cake with butterscotch. If this site could have a single prologue, it would go like this. It all started out so innocently. Because doesn't it always? I wanted something simple but got carried away. A search for lasagna I could love became a Mount Everest of a lasagna bolognese. A hankering for a great game day snack became a mashup of Welsh rarebit and a pull-apart rye bread. And a hunt for a quiche that could serve a crowd became a four-and-a-half-year vendetta until I triumphed over those 137 square inches of buttery, flaky shell. Okay, I'm being a little dramatic. I'm likely scaring away people who just wanted something simple to cook. I promise the next recipe will be so simple you might weep and wonder where it's been every rushed weekday night of your life thus far. In this case, I started daydreaming about the place where a simple crepe would intersect banana bread, and from there, I couldn't stop. Well, I had to stop for a week because my book's first pass pages came back. You guys, it looks so pretty. I can't wait to show you. And then they dragged it from my apartment. I wasn't done yet. And I found that my cooking mojo had left with it. If you'd like a delightful recipe for banana flat cakes, what I affectionately called the first flop, I've got one. Then, I was so low on groceries, I had only the exact number of eggs that I needed for the recipe, and like something out of a bad comedy skit, I managed to smash the egg on the outside of the mixing bowl. All of my hopes of getting this recipe to you in a reasonable time of frame, dribbling down the side and puddling on the counter. If this ever happens to you, promise me you won't leave the kitchen in disgust, if only because it happens to you Oh, if only because cleaning up that egg an hour later is only going to double your grump. Then my son demanded the last speckled banana, the one I'd been saving to try the crepes again, and it was a few days before the next batch were ripe enough to use. I am, if little else, the queen of excuses right now. When I finally triumphed over the banana crepe, I was so relieved that I got carried away. Know this. You can make banana crepes for breakfast as soon as possible. You can dust them with powdered sugar or dollop them with a little plain yogurt mixed with a spoonful of maple syrup and drop a vanilla extract and everyone will love them. You can go a step further, maybe even turning them into banana blintzes filled with lightly sweetened farmer's cheese and browning them in a pan. Or you show no remorse and do as I did and whip a lightly sweetened filling of cream cheese, Greek yogurt, and a little bit of sugar. Spread it thinly between each crepe as you stack them high. And again, you can stop right there. You can dust this with powdered sugar and serve it in wedges and totally win at breakfast. Or you can simmer a tiny batch of salted butterscotch sauce with toasted walnuts and serve it with this previously innocent wedge of crepe cake either puddled over the top or passed alongside the meal, and it will be almost insanely decadent. More insane if I hadn't made it a great effort to keep the sweetness of the crepe stack within greatly in check, but I see no reason to let that stop you. So there's some beautiful pictures of this crepe cake, which is layers and layers and layers of crepes with wonderful white something in between. We're going to find out. Banana crepe cake with yogurt and walnut butterscotch. 
A whole bunch of cooking notes and tips. First, crepes are magical. Once you accept that, the first one always goes in the trash, that things are really much easier with a nonstick pan. And if you struggle with crepe flipping, try to embrace my weirdo two spatula crepe flipping technique described below, and you will hit your stride and wonder why you don't make crepes more often. And you should, they keep fantastically well in the fridge for a few days even. They reheat well, they never stick to each other, so you can just stack them up. No fancy separators required. A note about banana flavor. The crepes taste the most strongly of banana when served simply. As other ingredients are added, like this filling, the banana flavor is less loud, but the overall flavor tumbles dreamily together. If you'd like it to scream banana, you might add paper-thin slices of banana throughout the crepe layers. It will also stack the cake higher. This is perfect for a decadent brunch meal or party. I think of it as a replacement for French toast, coffee cake, or buttery pastries. And although it sounds completely over the top, I made a great effort to keep it at least a little breakfasty. The crepes are barely sweetened, the filling remains tangy and only moderately sweet, and the butterscotch is as small of a yield as needed to just cover the top. And, it, pardon the pun, totally takes the cake. If you'd like to pass the walnut butterscotch alongside cake servings, rather than drizzling it over the top of the cake, I recommend that you double the yield and keep it warm so it stays pourable. If it still seems too thick, a little extra cream will thin it. The yield, 11 to 12 9 inch crepes or 1.5 inch cake. Banana crepes, 4 tablespoons butter melted and cooled slightly plus extra for greasing the pan. One large, um, it will weigh 6 ounces or 170 grams and be about 6 inches long when unpeeled. So one large speckly ripe banana, it should yield a scant 1 half cup peeled and pureed. One cup of milk, three quarters cup of all-purpose flour, four large eggs, two tablespoons of light brown sugar, one half teaspoon of vanilla extract, one quarter teaspoon of table salt, one half teaspoon of ground cinnamon, one quarter teaspoon of freshly ground nutmeg, pinch of ground cloves. For the cream cheese yogurt filling, you'll need eight ounces of cream cheese, well softened, one and a half cups of plain Greek style yogurt, one third cup of granulated sugar, one half teaspoon of vanilla extract. For the walnut butterscotch topping, you'll need one half cup of heavy whipping cream, one quarter cup of packed dark brown sugar, one tablespoon of unsalted butter at room temperature, one half cup of chopped walnuts toasted, one half teaspoon of vanilla extract, one one quarter teaspoon of flaky sea salt or to taste. To make the crepe batter, you're gonna blend banana in a food processor until totally smooth, add melted butter and blend again. Add the remaining ingredients and blend until they are combined. Transfer the batter, which will look pretty thin, to a bowl. It's even easier later if it has a spout. Cover with plastic wrap and chill for at least an hour, preferably overnight and up to two days. When you remove the batter, it will seem surprisingly thick. Stir it to redistribute the ingredients before using it. Next, you're gonna cook the crepes. 
Heat a medium skillet or crepe pan over medium-high heat. Once it's heated, brush the pan thinly with melted butter. Pour a quarter cup of batter into the skillet, swirling it until it evenly coats the bottom, and cook undisturbed until the bottom is golden and the top is set about two to three minutes. Flip the crepe and cook it for 30 seconds on the other side before transferring it to a plate to cool. Repeat with the remaining batter and you can stack your crepes and they should not stick together. Let the crepes cool completely. Okay, so here's my weirdo two spatula crepe flipping method. I have two spatulas handy, one flexible fish style spatula. These are my favorite for everything because they're so thin and one smaller like an offset icing spatula. I slide the larger one just a little bit under the crepe and lift it enough so that I can slide the smaller one under. I lift it enough so that I can get the larger one far underneath the crepe, then use the larger one alone to flip it. It makes it very easy, I promise. To make the filling, you're gonna whip the cream cheese until fluffy, then beat in the yogurt, one half cup at a time, and when fully combined, add sugar and vanilla, then beat until rich and fluffy, just another minute. Then you're gonna assemble the crepe cake. Lay the first crepe on a cake plat plate or serving platter, spread with one quarter cup of the yogurt cream cheese filling, repeat with all but the last remaining crepe, which should be stacked but have no filling on top, as it is the lid. Then to make the walnut butterscotch sauce, you're going to combine the cream, brown sugar, and butter in the bottom of a medium heavy saucepan over medium high heat. Bring the mixture to a boil, then reduce the heat and let it simmer for 10 minutes, stirring occasionally in the beginning and more frequently as it reduces and thickens. You'll know it's done when it becomes thick and smells toasty. Stir in the vanilla and salt and then the walnuts. Immediately pour over the stack of filled crepes, nudging the butterscotch to the edges with your spoon. If it, if it goes over the edge, so be it. Serve immediately or keep in the fridge until ready to serve. The crepe cake keeps for up to three days, possibly longer, but good luck with that. I don't think it's gonna happen. Next, we're gonna have a recipe for bean and vegetable burritos. Well, I haven't been strictly vegetarian in a long time, I still hold petty grudges. Grudges that I work out here in the form of the dishes I'd have preferred as options over the mediocrity, the afterthoughtness of most meatless entrees. Gloopy pastas or vegetables cobbled together from sides from other dishes. Sandwiches, cheese, and sometimes soggy lettuce or tomato. And burritos with so much filler. A recent trip to a Tex-Mex chain left me surprised as not much had changed. And as I chewed down my football size wrap that was 80% rice, 15% beans, 5% salsa and cheese, my old resentment came back in full force. Vegetarian entrees, sandwiches and tacos can be so much more. Let's start here. This is my core recipe for a perfect every time vegetable burrito one that's filling, hearting, and, it, and exactly the way I like it. This means there's no rice in it, but you can, of course, add it if you want. You can swap the spinach for another green. You can add vegetables you love and remove those that you don't. It is totally flexible. 
Even more essential, you can freeze these for another day. For years, I defrosted and rewarmed burritos in the oven. It often took 45 minutes or more for them to be hot again, at which point it seemed like I could have just made it fresh. Not sure why it took me so long to realize you could warm a frozen burrito in the microwave in three to five minutes. But my life has had three times the burritos and thus joy ever since. Here's the recipe, bean and vegetable burritos. It serves eight burritos, takes 45 minutes plus reheating time. Source, right here, Smitten Kitchen. You'll need two tablespoons of olive or vegetable oil, one medium onion, diced small, two large cloves of garlic, minced, one fresh jalapeno or habanero pepper, minced, one bell pepper, diced, one teaspoon of ground cumin, two to three teaspoons of ground chili powder to taste, two tablespoons of tomato paste, one 14 ounce can of diced tomatoes, kosher salt, two 15 and a half ounce cans of black, red or pinto beans, drained and rinsed, one and a half cups of corn kernels, fresh from two ears or canned and drained or frozen and there's no need to thaw. 5 ounces of baby spinach, roughly chopped, 1 lime, halved, 1 cup of crumbled cotija cheese, 8 ounces, and that's about 2 cups of coarsely grated Monterey Jack or Pepper Jack cheese, 8 large burrito-sized flour tortillas, and hot sauce to taste. First, you're going to make the filling. You're going to heat your largest skillet or saute pan over medium-high heat. Once it's hot, add the oil, and once the oil is hot, add the onion, garlic, jalapeno, and bell pepper, and cook until the ingredients begin to soften three to four minutes. Add the cumin, a smaller amount of chili powder, and tomato paste, and cook for one minute. Add the diced tomatoes and let simmer for one minute, then add the beans and simmer for two to three minutes. Taste the mixture and add salt. I find that I need between two to three teaspoons of kosher salt to get it the right level, but adjust it to your taste. Add the last one teaspoon of chili powder if needed for your desired heat level. Add the corn and spinach and stir until the spinach has wilted and everything is warm. Taste for seasoning again and adjust as needed. Remove from the heat and squeeze the juice of half the lime over the mixture, then the second half if you like more. Let it cool slightly while you get ready to assemble your burritos. So if you're ready to assemble the burritos, if your tortillas are unbendy from the package, you can warm them briefly in a dry skillet or for 15 seconds in the microwave to soften them. If they seem dry, I might spritz them lightly with water before warming. You're gonna arrange your first tortilla on the counter and spoon about three quarters of a cup of the filling in the lower third closest to you. Sprinkle with a quarter cup of jack cheese and two tablespoons of cotija. If you'd like to make some burritos spicier than others, you can shake hot sauce on at this point. Fold the bottom of the tortilla over the filling, fold in the sides, and roll it up, setting it to cool seam down. Repeat with the remaining tortillas, filling, and cheese. To eat right away, just go for it but I love to brown it in a pan on both sides for some added texture and to ensure that the cheese gets melty. 
Heat a skillet with a thin layer of oil over medium heat and add the burritos that you're ready to eat. Cook until brown and crisp on both sides and dig in. If you want to freeze for later, wrap the burritos individually in foil, that's best for oven reheating, or plastic and pack in a freezer bag with all the air pressed out. Burritos keep in the freezer a few months or for as long as your freezer allows them to without imparting a freezery taste. So to reheat from frozen in an oven, you're gonna heat your oven about 375 degrees Fahrenheit and heat the foil wrap burrito for 40 to 50 minutes. To check for the warmth, stick a toothpick or skewer into the center of a burrito and keep it there for 10 seconds. If the toothpick is warm when it's removed, the burrito is too. And if not, give it more time. To reheat from frozen in a microwave, you're gonna unwrap the burrito and microwave on a plate for three to five minutes, turning over once midway. To check for warmth, again, you just stick a toothpick or a skewer into the center of the burrito and keep it there for 10 seconds. And if the toothpick is warm when it's removed, the burrito is too. So, and if not, give it a little more time. For both methods, for that extra crisp once warmed, Follow the skillet instructions under to eat right away above. Here's some notes. Um, chili powders tend to range a lot in heat level, so give it a taste before you start to make sure you're not surprised after adding the first two teaspoons. And then depending on the size of my tortillas, I sometimes end up with one to one and a half cups of extra filling. You can use it to make more burritos or just heat it up with extra cheese and put an egg on top as I did with Delight last week. Next, we've got a recipe for carrot soup from eatingwell.com. This easy carrot soup recipe is a great way to use up a bag of carrots that were forgotten in your produce drawer. The carrots cook together with aromatics like onions, garlic, and fresh herbs before being pureed into a silky smooth soup that's delicious for dinner or packed up for lunch. Uh, active time is 40 minutes, additional time 10 minutes, the total time for this recipe is 50 minutes. It serves 8, about 1 cup each. So is carrot soup vegetarian? It can be. We like the savory flavor of chicken broth, but if you want a vegetarian soup, chicken flavored broth, a vegetarian broth despite its name, is preferable to a vegetable broth for its hearty rich flavor and light golden color. Vegetable broth will work too, but it may darken the color. Sometimes called no chicken broth, it can be found with the soups in the natural food section of most supermarkets. Can I make carrot soup ahead? Absolutely. Cover and refrigerate carrot soup for up to four days or freeze for up to three months. How to make carrot soup extra creamy. The easiest way to make your carrot soup creamy is to simply add cream after it's blended. We prefer half and half to cut back on saturated fat. If you want to skip the cream entirely, using a high-powered stand blender can give you light and creamy results. A regular stand blender works well too, but you may have to blend it for longer. And when using any stand blender, be sure to remove the centerpiece from the lid and hold a clean towel over the hole to prevent burns. An immersion blender will blend the soup, but it tends to not blend it as finely, so the result will be less creamy. Here's the ingredients. You'll need one tablespoon of butter, one tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil, one medium onion chopped, 
one stalk of celery chopped, two garlic cloves chopped, one teaspoon of chopped fresh thyme or parsley, five cups of chopped carrots, two cups of water, four cups of reduced sodium chicken broth or no chicken broth or vegetable broth, it's your choice. One half cup of half and half, this is optional. One half teaspoon salt and freshly ground pepper to taste. First, you're gonna heat the butter and oil in a Dutch oven over medium heat until the butter melts. Add onion and celery, cook, stirring occasionally until softened, four to six minutes. Add garlic and thyme or parsley if you're using it. Cook, stirring until fragrant about 10 minutes. Or sorry, 10 seconds, <laughs> much quicker. Stir in the carrots, add water and broth, bring to a lively simmer over high heat. Reduce the heat to maintain a lively simmer and cook until very tender, about 25 minutes. Next, you're gonna puree the soup in batches in a blender until smooth. So always use caution when you're pureeing hot liquids. And then you're gonna stir in half and half if you're using and salt and pepper. Our last recipe is for strawberry rhubarb soda syrup. There are a lot of great reasons to make your own soda syrup. You can use real sugar rather than the high fructose corn syrup devil that lurks in most bottles. You can make flavors that make you happy from real seasonal ingredients with complexity and intensity. And you can use up excess of things in your fridge, like say the time you assume strawberries being on sale meant that you were gonna eat a few pounds of them before you went bad, before they went bad. You can use the syrup as a foundation for cocktails because it's Friday and baby you've earned it. You can package bottles up as gifts for friends because you're just that awesome of a person. Phew, it is a good thing that none of you thought I was punk rock because clearly this post is as twee as anything. Fortunately, there's a bit of substance beneath the fluff. This syrup tastes intensely like fragrant strawberries and tart rhubarb laced with a hint of lemon and it's miles better than anything I've ordered for $8 from my nearest bespoke restaurant's mocktail menu. It's incredibly practical too. The pulp left over from straining the syrup makes a fantastic stir into your morning oatmeal, yogurt, or even dolloped on top of this weekend's oatmeal pancakes. But you know you can also make it because it's a brilliant ray of spring. I did not touch the saturation dial on these photos and there are worse things than opening up your fridge after a long day and finding a hot pink bottle of fizzy refreshment waiting for you. Here's the recipe. Strawberry rhubarb soda syrup. It yields three cups if you're patient. You need one pound of strawberries, stems removed and halved, one pound of rhubarb chopped into one half inch segments, one cup of granulated sugar, one cup of water and one lemon. Combine the strawberries, rhubarb, sugar, and water in a large saucepan. Remove several strips of peel from the lemon with a knife or peeler and add them to the pot. Bring the mixture to a boil and then reduce it to a gentle simmer. Simmer for 20 minutes or until the fruit has completely collapsed, stirring occasionally. Remove from the heat, add the juice of half the lemon or more to taste and let the fruit cool in the syrup for maximum infusion. Once cool, you're gonna pour the mixture through a fine mesh strainer, or if you only have a coarse one, line it with cheesecloth or a lint-free towel. Press the solids with the back of a spoon or spatula to get the most syrup from them. 
You should have two cups right away, but I had to run an errand and I left mine sitting in the strainer and was delighted to find three full cups of syrup when I got back. Pour it into a glass bottle and chill until needed. Save the fruit pulp in a separate container. It can be used to stir into plain yogurt, oatmeal, or even dollop on pancakes. But be sure to fish out or at least look for the lemon peels if you do. To make one glass of soda, pour two tablespoons of the syrup in the bottom of a glass, fill with ice, and then seltzer or sparkling water. Give it a stir and add more syrup to taste. For a large glass, you might use up to two tablespoons more. Garnish with a lemon wedge if you wish. Drink and pretend it's spring. As far as doing ahead, the syrup should keep in the fridge for at least three weeks, if not longer. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.